and we need to let go of the growth pursuit. But people here is I'm anti-growth. And um, I'm not against growth. I just think if it contributes to well-being, let's do it. If it doesn't, why bother? This is a podcast called Walk, Talk, Listen. An attempt to connect people and make this world a bit better by sharing opinions and experiences based on the belief that everyone's perspective is true, albeit partial. My name is Maurice Blum, and I would like to welcome you to yet another episode of Walk, Talk, Listen. Good day, everybody. This is another episode of the podcast Walk, Talk, Listen. And as always, I'm delighted with today's guest who will introduce herself. Uh, Gaia, please go ahead. Hello. Happy to be here. Uh, So my name is Gaia Harrington. I was born in the Netherlands, but I've been living in the U.S. for the past nine years. Um, And I am currently working at Schneider Electric in their uh, Research Sustainability Institute. So I'm a sustainability researcher with a focus on uh, how to change the economic system in a way that it produces things that are just real, really beneficial socially and environmentally speaking. And how I got there was really, I, I studied econometrics in the Netherlands at uh, Free University of, of Amsterdam. And then as, as it typically went in those days, then you just get plucked up by the financial sector. So that's where I ended up okay. um, just before the financial crisis hit. And then um, I actually left just before uh, because I, I, I didn't really understand what we were doing. I was looking at these things and I was like, these valuations seem so divorced from uh, the actual risks that are out there. Um, and then as it turns out later, I, I was sort of right. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so uh, I, I eventually ended up at the Dutch Central Bank regulating. And once I started doing that, I started to analyze how risks actually interact with one another. Because what regulators typically do is they, they have one specific risk that they regulate, and then every colleague has a different one that they focus on. But what you saw in the crisis is that they actually really interact a lot. And, and then I'm talking about very technical risks, like market risk, liquidity risk, credit risk. But then I realized, wait, it's not just these financial risks that are interrelated, environmental risk, behavioral, political, social, this is all interrelated as well. And we're, we're not really treating it as, as if that's the case. So that's when I um, went back to study sustainability at Harvard. And in the meantime, I had started working at KPMG in the US. They asked me to, to do this kind of analysis work for them over there. So that was very interesting. And then um, my thesis at Harvard, I did on the first uh, system dynamics model of the world, which was created by MIT scientists in the 70s. And that was really the first model that that did precisely, as I just mentioned, the, that. So it modeled the interactions between uh, pollution, population, industrial output, uh, the, the natural resources we have, and all of those things, uh, human services, education, and health, um, and all of those things, and then um, how those interact, and then how those develop over time, 
throughout the 21st century, because this was still done in the 20th century. And then what they found based on that and uh, to their own surprise at the time was, well, this pursuit of growth that we have in our society, right? We measure our success by um, how much our income is growing, how much profit is growing, how much GDP is growing every quarter. Um, as if we keep doing that, we will uh, the humanity will experience a collapse, meaning a steep decline from a previous peak somewhere in the 21st century. And actually, they put the peak of that collapse around today, present time. Mm-hmm. And so uh, just a few years ago, I was like, well, given that prospect, let's see how that how much empirical data because we have empirical data now a few decades worth let's see how that matches up and then what i found was that it's actually we're still following that business as usual scenario it was not the only scenario they created other scenarios with the model uh, but the one based on historical averages only the business as usual that one showed uh, a collapse that doesn't mean the end of human civilization. Um, it doesn't mean the end of all humans, mm-hmm. but it does mean kind of the end of society as we know it, yeah. uh, because it's a steep decline from previous peaks. That it was also in population, in industrial output, um, in food production, and welfare levels. Um, so that was I published that research in a paper, a peer reviewed. Uh, article, uh, Yale's Journal of Industrial Ecology, and that went a little bit viral at the time. <laughs> uh, you're really being modest here, but uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and it, but it's funny because editors yeah. just love the word collapse, right? So mm-hmm, it's basically, mm-hmm. uh, they, it was interpreted as a prediction of doom, but it's not yeah. a prediction at all. Mm-hmm. It's a warning. Right. So we can't go on like this. But it was also in there. It was like, hey, there's this other scenario that we're not closely aligned with. So we're not on that trajectory, but we're still close enough to it that if we deliberately change our behavior, we could still align ourselves with that. That's also what I said in my research that made it into the headlines much less. Uh, But that's really what has led me to my research today, because in that scenario, uh, the stabilized world scenario in that research, um, humanity deliberately uh, lets go of the growth pursuit and adopts a new goal, which is um, is, is not something that humans typically do. Humans are very married psychologically to their prevalent narrative to the system as they know it, but it is certainly possible. We've done that in history before. Yeah. And, and it is completely feasible to change the goal. So instead of uh, growth, however that is measured, uh, GDP is arguably a very bad measure, but any measure really, growth on a finite planet is is always bad. Mm-hmm. Um, it's always unsustainable. Um, so instead, what you want to be aiming for is meeting human needs within ecological boundaries. That's a that's a much better goal. And that's, that is totally possible. We've had those goals um, implicitly in a lot of societies in throughout history. We still see that today with some indigenous populations, for example, and there there are still fragments of it also in, in certain countries. Um, so there's, there's let's say, Costa Rica, who's, who's very much has uh, rights of nature in their entire uh, governance system. We have Bhutan, who measures with a, a gross national happiness index instead of GDP. So it's, it's all, um, you know, it's possible, it's in us. Uh, it's not 
what we currently are doing. And so this new economic system is, I would call, a well-being economics. And that's what my current research is focused on. It's, I'm really fascinated by that, and you know my listeners also know that I've talked in uh, in past episode with Case Klopf, who's also from the Netherlands. Actually, you know, who wrote about this. Um, mm-hmm. I, I had a talk with with Josh Podek, you you as well. You know, he really changed his life. I I really would like to go there to system changes um, because I, I'm really interested in that as well. But before we go there, you know, I have a lot of let's say, younger uh, listeners who always ask me questions about, you know, how do you get from where you are now? You know, what, how do I make a career or how do I uh, find work that is really an extension of what I'm about? So I, I would like to ask you to go a few steps back. And um, one is, you know, you, because you were saying we can still change. So my question to you is, can you change? Are you changing? Um, and then link that back to where you grew up and, you know, how was your upbringing? What, what, the, what was that about? And yeah, t- take us through that a, li- a little bit. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a very good, uh, it's a good question because I personally think that the systems change that mm-hmm. we need is at the same time very personal. So it's it's almost a little bit counterintuitive at first because you are part of this big system, but this means that you are influenced sometimes by parts in the system that you have no control over, which is quite a mindset shift to where we also have this, I think a narrative in in society that is still quite prevalent. You are, you you make your own destiny, you, you know, you force your own luck. And if you work hard, it will always pay off. I do think that you should work hard and have good values and be kind, et cetera. But the, the truth is that sometimes the outcomes are influenced by a system that you have just by yourself, very little control over. Mm-hmm. And it can be quite overwhelming to look at that, realize that, and, and then go, how do I even start mm-hmm. making a change here? And I would say that it really starts on a very deeply personal level. Mm-hmm. And it can't end there. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what I always say. You can't save the world by just recycling. But that is where it starts. What What, what really v- has value to me? Um, and indeed, look at back at your own life and see how and, and see how that has shaped your perspective and realize, well, other people have very different perspectives. Um, and, and then from that, from those values that you've identified, see where you can find your best part in the system. I will say that you don't have to have a lot of power or control in the system. So you don't have to be a CEO to make that change. I think everybody can do change. That's the that's the good thing about working in a system. Everything you do matters. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it starts with that personal thing. So um, for me, my name Gaia was, I was named after the goddess of the earth. Mm-hmm. So that's because my parents were hippies. So in that sense, I think I already got that rudimentary, um, that that the, the appreciation of nature was already, mm-hmm. I think, quite in, in me from a quite young age. Um, I think... Uh, at the same time, I also grew up in the Netherlands, which is 
these days, uh, you know, I, I live in the US, so some people think that's some kind of socialist country. But the truth is that, you know, that's where capitalism was first conceived, that the Dutch made that up. Um, and, uh, you know, if, the US at some point took it and really went with it. But uh, it was it's a, it, it originated from the Netherlands. So that's that's very interesting. Uh, I, and I think that I too had at some point this idea of um, where you this had this this illusion of control and that and stability mm-hmm. and that you know I guess that's that's the, just the time I grew up in right the, the Fukuyama end of history kind of uh, idea that we we've kind of figured it out mm-hmm. and you know this is we're gonna still gonna have events but this is this is it. And uh, and that's I, I've come to realize that this is not the case. That we are, I actually think it's almost the opposite. I think we live in incredibly important time in history, and what we do now for the next five to maximum ten years will determine welfare welfare levels for the rest of the century. Because mm-hmm. as I said, we have time to change still, but that window of opportunity is closing fast and it's not just me and my research who say that right we know this mm-hmm. the climate scientists but also other scientists that monitor biodiversity levels to say we're we're on we're going to have biodiversity mass die off tipping points within the next five to ten years if we don't drastically well basically stop killing every other thing that we can't directly eat uh we have plenty of pigs in the world but the rest of the species not are not doing so great mm-hmm. um and you know and 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 that's just the environmental ones a few of the environmental ones same with water scarcity decertification um, but of course, there's also the social tipping points, like income and wealth inequality, is clearly, I think, at at a, at a at a breaking point. I don't know where how that's gonna unfold, but I do know it's not it's not gonna stay like this. Mm-hmm. We see some increased geopolitical uh, turmoil. Um, I think all those things is um, are so. What what my research said, and I think is confirmed by what we could all observe around us is, um, you know, limits to growth basically will be forced upon us one way or the other. So we can choose our own limits or they will be forced upon us through ecosystem breakdown. Yeah. And and to go to go back to your, you know, you, you said, okay, you, you got the name Gaia because your parents were hippies. So how how uh, how else did that you know um, influence you? Um, because you know if I if I read your work, I see a lot. Of, I see a, a global citizen. It's it's about um, you know we're all interconnected, and then we have mm. to solve it together. But I mm-hmm. think one of the the problems is that you know maybe many of us are tribal, and so and and that you know is hampering our collaboration and our really, you know, working together. Um, so how, what happened in, you know, when you went to school and how did you grow up that you got that perspective? Did you start traveling very quickly or, you know? I, yeah, how- so I, I do think that traveling really opens up hmm. your mind, doesn't it? Uh, and and you, you just see that once you start going out of your bubble, you, you realize, oh, this is just one version of so many. Uh, so I, th- I do think traveling just 
by the sheer uncomfortability of it, because it is quite uncomfortable, <laughs> uh, it, it just opens your mind. So that's mm -hmm. that's certainly absolutely true. Um, I think it was a real gradual process. I mm -hmm. really think that I was, because my first um, study was in econometrics, right? And mm -hmm. they that's a very, that's a, one school of, of economics. It's called yeah. economics, but really it's just one school, the neoclassical economics. Mm -hmm. And I really, I, it's quite a, you know, what are called mental models. So are often unconscious, subconscious ideas of how the world works. And the, that, those ideas are we're all selfish optimizers and um, maybe a little bit in the, in the vein of what you said about our tribal side. And, uh, you know, we, uh, we just that's how we go through life. And so we're all optimizing, but that's fine because the market will deliver maximum benefit for all through that selfish pursuit. Uh, that's, that's the underlying mental model there. And then, you know, you start to travel and you see a lot of things that just don't fit into that model at all. Sure. And I think, um, I, I think I probably had a rudimentary idea of that growing up in, in with my hippie parents, but I, it, it only got really formalized uh, during my studies at Harvard, where I started to, for example, uh, to, to learn about the difference between needs and wants, which I think is very interesting that mm. this isn't taught at all, uh, that these are very often just presented as interchangeable. Mm. But to your question, you know, what you said about, well, how are we going to do that? Because clearly we're tribal, and and so that him that hamper, uh, hampers our ability to cooperate and come together. The thing is, that's the whole point with well-being economics. Um, it it makes a clear distinction between human needs and wants. So what I said earlier, I also said the goal should be meeting human needs within ecological limits. Wants are not in there. Uh, wants are not bad. You can have wants; it's fine. Um, but they are not as important as needs. So there are clear differences between needs and wants, actually. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of people might already be aware, for example, of Maslow's pyramid of needs, right? Uh, and, and these are actually universal. So there's this notion that, well, everybody should satisfy their own wants because, you know, we can't decide for you what you want. Mm -hmm. But the truth is, when it comes to needs, we all have the same things. We all need food, shelter, water, uh, and uh, sex, um, uh, safety. And then come the social. Those are more physiological. Mm -hmm. And then come the social needs. We, we want to feel respected. We want to feel that our jobs every day are not just tricks for money, but that we actually contribute to our community. Those are real needs. We mentally suffer if we don't have that. And that goes back to what you said earlier about young people, like, where can I find a job? You want a job that has an income where you can satisfy your more physiological needs. And that's very understandable. At the same time, even people will have that in, in say, the richer countries, right? Um, they are often, more often than not, are disengaged at work because they don't feel like what they do every single day adds real societal value. And that's why I think this this notion of a well-being economy actually would certainly deliver to a lot of people whose basic needs aren't even met, right? They can't, they don't have access to clean water, all those things. That's very clear how they would benefit from a well-being economy. But I think people um, like you and I, for example, even we would benefit because we would have our social and then our spiritual needs and, you know, a need to serve a higher purpose. Um, that those would actually also be met much more 
in a well-being economy. So yeah, if you ask me, how do we get there then? Mm-hmm. The, the larger picture uh, answer is that, well, we have to meet human needs first because it is true that we're kind of a, we're not really homo economicus actually, we're more of a homo duplex. So when our basic needs are not met, we really are quite selfish and short-term focused. And this is completely understandable. If you're, I mean, you skip lunch once and you know, you, you, you become completely unspeakable. Uh, <laughs> uh, at least I if, I, if I skip lunch, don't talk to me. Um, so when your needs are not met, where you're tired or hungry, just unhealthy or feel unsafe, you're not going to worry about climate change. This is, this is very understandable. But once those needs are met, we actually become, and that's the other part of it, we become very curious and altruistic and just really uh, mostly motivated by contributing to the greater good. We want connection with people. We want a sense of meaning and a sense of self-development. Uh, so, you know, it, and that's the great thing about this well-being economics. It will it will deliver for everybody. You will you will absolutely have to do with less material. So there's it's not like it's a free lunch. Uh, you there will be less stuff because the other part, the ecological well-being, um, we are all in the richer nations above uh, Earth's carrying capacity, our share of it. So we will have to bring down our material footprint. Um, but that doesn't mean that we're going to live in huts. <laughs> it just means that, uh, you know, for example, private jets, except for uh, government officials, uh, should probably be banned. Uh, people will not be able to have big yachts anymore. Um, this and this this is how, has, will have almost no impact to uh, for the vast majority of the population. Um, but also things like uh, obviously we need to ch- uh, uh, need to move away from fossil fuels. We will still have energy but it will be generated through renewable sources. Um, we will still have clothes, but this enormous fast fashion sector should be should be shrunk because there's a lot of environmental pollution there, a lot of waste that is created. A lot of these things just fall apart after three wears. And the way they are created is, is, is not good for the well-being of the people who make our clothes. Uh, so those kind of things. So we have to give up some of that, but I would argue we get so much more back. And what what I like, you know, listening to you and what I also like when I read the book is that, um, and you said this in the beginning, is that there is still hope that we can, you know, change the equation. Um, you know, ha- having said that, you know, both uh, within our own country, the, the Netherlands, we have a, a lot of polarization and, you know, people don't seem to want to make changes. The same in, in the US. So. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I very much always look at, at the model of, of Ken Wilber, as I mentioned to you, and that says that every issue, uh, problem that we look at has at least four perspectives, I, we, it, and its. So it and its is looking at system changes, processes, but you can't do that without, uh, you know, changes, changing within yourself and looking at your community. Um, is, is that something similar that you um getting it within your book and then the actions that are necessary to change the system that we have developed yes i think so i have in my book for example the different i have the ice the systems iceberg and the different mm-hmm. levels you are working at 
Uh, and so I, I do think there's, and, and we already touched upon that just a little bit in the beginning, mm -hmm. right? There's your personal, you start with your personal and then yeah. you look in your direct community and then you look at the bigger system. So I think all those layers need to be there. You're, you're absolutely right. Um, so I, I do think that that's uh, something that I touch upon in my book. What I also say in my book is, uh, you know, at the end, all at the end in my conclusion, I, I, I think I, I answered that question that you talk about, like, yeah, we, we need to change. We can, but will we kind of thing? Because I also see a lot of polarization. I see signs that we are not willing or we're not doing it enough. And, um, and the, the honest answer to the question is, I, I don't know. I, I just think that we can. We absolutely have the technological uh, abilities. We know the policies we need. Um, I also think that we want to, I really do. And this is just from, uh, not just me, but just from surveys in general around the world. You see that when we ask the general population about how they feel about their current economic system and the political system, a majority of people want deep systemic changes. They don't want just the eco-innovation and that will solve it. They know, they realize they want the, the big systemic changes. Uh, we see that trust levels in, in the entire economic system. So capitalism is are, are, are at all-time lows. People, even in the US now, the younger generation, not the general population, but the younger generation mm -hmm. is more positive about socialism than capitalism. That doesn't mean that the future is socialist, but it does signal that there is this general idea that our current system is not working. And then um, what I do now is, is talking about an alternative, basically, that I think appeals to a lot of people. I think a lot of people like this idea of well-being um and and understand these notions of basic needs and um and and most of us love nature right we mm -hmm. we we love that we 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 are hurting when we hear about the rainforest being on fire even though we've never been there we probably never will visit but we care so this this isn't all of us i i think the most of us so i do think that we want to uh, will we that i don't i i honestly i don't know And I have a question to you about, uh, because you work for uh, Snyder Electric at the moment, right? Mm -hmm. So that's, that is a, a company, you know, in, in the US. So, you know, um, so I, I totally understand you, you know, the things that we have to change from a Western perspective. Uh, but my organization works in, you know, a lot of countries that are struggling, where there's a lot of poverty. Um, yeah, their voices are, you know, we are in this situation because of you guys. So we, you know, we want to have a piece of the cake as well. And and I totally get that. So how, how do we need to go about that uh, yeah. issue? Yeah, excellent question. And thank you for asking it. Because sometimes when I say mm -hmm. we need to let go of the growth pursuit, but people here is I'm anti-growth. And um, I'm not against growth. I just think if it contributes to well-being, mm -hmm. let's do it. If it doesn't, why bother? And right now what we're doing, we have this uh, growth at all costs, even at the social and environmental costs. That's very clear. We already know that uh, that in the in the richer countries, it, it just doesn't, well-being levels haven't increased anymore. Um, you, you hear this a lot about green growth, right? Where you hold on 
to the pursuit of growth, but it's going to be greener. It's going to be decoupled. I'm making air quotes now for people who are listening. Uh, and the thing is, the, there is no evidence that it has never worked. So there is, we have, there are headlines that are touting, oh, these countries have reached decoupling, like in the Netherlands. But then if you look at it, it's not near, anywhere near, like where we are, where we could pursue green growth endlessly without damaging trashing the place our our ecological over our earth overshoot day i think is somewhere in april okay it's we don't even make it to half the year so uh so yes our our gdp has um has increased while our carbon emissions for example are decreasing much less but to the part where we have absolute decoupling uh, an absolute sufficient decoupling that is nowhere in the data. And that's just carbon emissions. So there is zero decoupling on biodiversity loss, for example. You know what has decoupled? Uh, reported happiness, life expectancy in the US for sure, uh, health status in general, those things have decoupled. So, um, you know, we can clearly, uh, like I said, our, we can still improve our well being actually, but it would be by focusing on our social and spiritual needs. And and guess what? How do you get that? How do you add social connection? Well, as it turns out, uh, a lot of solutions that lower our environmental footprint actually involve more labor, which kind of makes sense, right? You, you typically, you have maybe less capital, mm. industrial capital. So do you compensate through that by with... Um, with 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 labor, which is actually a great way to uh, that offers hope for maintaining employment levels in an in a zero growth environment. Also, through that labor, typically think about, for example, the sharing economy. If it's applied accurately, that's about making connections with people in your neighborhood through the exchange of goods, mm-hmm. right? So, which which addresses our need for social connection. A lot of, of people have no idea where their neighbors are. Um, so all of those things are are offer a lot of hope for, um, for for no growth environments in the richer countries, and as you said, uh, it's a very different story in countries where people's basic needs are not yet met. For though you know, for food, shelter now all requires uh, some some natural capital, and that's totally fine. Um, those countries they can still grow because we know that growth. Uh, at lower income levels is very strongly correlated with reported happiness and health levels. Mm-hmm. It just starts to decouple a bit. Uh, no, actually, it starts to decouple significantly after a certain threshold, which has already been met in um, in Western countries. But in in as you say, in developing countries, um, they still need growth to meet their basic needs. Also, not always, but uh, uh, certainly many times it will. And that's precisely why. Um, the richer countries, a lot of them with a colonial past too, and in my my personal opinion, uh, a certain responsibility to help them grow. Um, you know, that's why they have to lower their footprint so that the developing countries can still grow. No, thanks for thanks for that. Um, hey, you you are an advisor. Uh, to the Club of Rome, yeah. is that correct? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, can Can you tell us what, what does that mean? You know, what do you have to do, and what can we expect uh, from the Club of Rome? You know, in in the near future. Yeah, uh, of course. Year? Yeah. 
Yeah, so the Club of Rome is a group that was also established in the 70s. It's a it's a it's a club of of thinkers from around the world and actually that they commissioned that limits to growth study by the MIT scientists. So they in the 70s started asking question about interconnectedness. So uh, people with a lot of foresight and they were like why despite all our progress and these were industrialists by the way at the time and they said, why, despite all of our innovation and these things that we're capable of doing, why do we still see these, what they call the continuous critical problems of humanity, mm. poverty, conflict, pollution, disease? Why does this keep plaguing us? And they said, presumably these things are interrelated, but how? And so that's why that's when they asked the MIT scientists to study that. And uh, as I mentioned, they they did that study with the world model. Uh, they published that in a, a book called 1972 bestseller, The Limits to Growth. And um, and since then, uh, and it was it was a bestseller. And after that, it was very um, effectively attacked. And that's mm -hmm. why perhaps a lot of the younger people listening to this podcast today had never heard of it. It was very effectively buried because uh, it just... There were it, it went too much against the, the, the notion of what progress is at the time. It's just that simple, you know. Uh, growth is not just it's not just growth. We have a narrative where we equate it with progress, um, and that's I think we are being told that the only way to lift people out of poverty is through growth, and that's what I always say. And like, well, we can also just do it directly, you know, <laughs> just lift them out of poverty directly. Uh, why, why, why don't we just do that? Uh, if that if that is supposedly the real goal of growth, why don't we just do it directly? Uh, you know, uh, but of course, um, that's not the real reason we pursue growth. There, it's totally possible to meet everybody's needs within without growing the pie. We just have to sh share the pie more equally. Mm. But that would mean that people who have large shares of the pie right now would have to give something up. And growth is indeed the only way that we can lift people out of poverty without the ultra rich giving up any of their wealth. And I think that's why it was so viciously attacked. Hmm. Notice that thanks for the uh, clarification. That's, that's really helpful. And but now, um, yeah, some more people are looking at it again, right? So what what is the Club of Rome doing uh, yep. now to uh, yes address it? Yeah, that's no, that's true. So and, and now people are like, oh, I guess that was that was actually quite on the ball, mm -hmm. uh, which is a shame because at the time we were actually still below our Earth carrying capacity. So if yeah. we would have let, if we would have heeded the message of the limits to growth at the time, we could have had a relatively smooth transition mm -hmm. towards Earth carrying capacity without overshoot. Now we've been above Earth's carrying capacity for the last few decades. And so it's a very different story. This is a very common uh, pattern in, in ecology. You, you go above any ecosystem's carrying capacity, you have an overshoot that's called, and then you inevitably always have a collapse. And so mm -hmm. that's where we are. Um, and so now the Club of Rome, it still exists. Of course, membership has changed, but it still exists. And um, since my I published my research, they've asked me to be an advisor to them and, and many other uh, people. Mm -hmm. And they published an, a new book uh, this, uh, this time called Earth for All. 
And with that, they created a new model of the world, this time with more uh, differences uh, between the regions, because mm -hmm. the first model was global. And they wanted to know more about, you know, the difference between countries had, had increased and also within countries. So they wanted to be able to focus more on inequality. And they identified five leverage points in the system where we need to work on if we want to still make that drastic change, because that's th the thing, right? At the time, they were like, okay, we can let this go and we can gradually go there. And then we didn't do that. So now we're running out of time. So we need to focus on those points in the system where we can expect maximum leverage. So where mm -hmm. you have a dis your actions in that point have a disproportionate effect if they're out the system. And they identified five leverage points, two of them environmental and three of them social. So mm. that's, I think, a key thing to understand. And what, in my personal opinion, uh, a lot of people still don't understand. Also, people who are, for example, very passionate about climate change. They think that we can still solve that through uh, environmental problems, through technological solutions. If that was the case, it would already have been solved. Uh, this this tackling climate change is also has a huge social component. And what you see is that, of course, there is resistance from the top, say people who are getting very rich from fossil fuels, but there's yeah. also resistance from the bottom. Why is that? And that's because if the transition, because it's inevitably a transition, if the transition is not fair, if it's not perceived as fair, for example, by those people who are now uh, having a dependent on an income from, say, the coal industry, um, it will be resisted by them as well. So it, it, there is a, a very strong component of equality in there. So the first uh, two leverage points, the first one is obviously we need to shift from energy generation to uh, to renewable energy generation, shift, uh, phase out fossil fuels, but also be more um, uh, energy efficient in general, electrify everything that can be electrified. Um, the second one is how we produce our food, because that's incredibly unsustainable right now. It's driving, it's the biggest driver of biodiversity loss and decertification. Uh, and we still have a growing population. So it's, you know, we're, we're not going to be able to feed everybody if we keep doing it like this. But there are regenerative practices for agriculture. So that's not just not deplete the soil, but actually enrich it. So and those need to be scaled massively. But the other three are, are social. So there's the inequality within countries. So we need to bring down, um, we need to uh, do a lot of redistribution there. Mm -hmm. uh, again, also this goes to the fair transition part of the energy transition. And um, the other one is inequality between countries. So we, we talked about that, we, that we're talking there also about reforms to IMF and World Bank policies, mm -hmm. etc. Um, and the fifth one is uh, gender equality. Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, you know, uh, more female leadership, um, all those things are, are very uh, important. They are a, a, an enormous leverage point in the system to really get to that um, well-being economy where we're sharing our stuff more equally. I will pick up on... on... Some of these things a little bit later in our conversation. Um, the other question that I wanted to ask you, Gaia, is you are at the present the VP sustainability. Uh, now I cannot re read my own handwriting. What's the, your full title again? Sorry, I'm vice vice president of sustainability research. Yeah. Yes, that's what it was. Um, <laughs> <laughs> now, um, yeah, what are you supposed to do? 
I work in the research institute and mm -hmm. I, what I do, it's a very small team. And what I do is basically, okay. uh, doesn't have to be commercially viable, uh, certainly not directly. So, um, Snyder Electric was voted most sustainable corporation in the world in 2021. Mm -hmm. It's a very low bar. Uh, so it's, you know, in that sense, I don't think uh, many companies are truly sustainable. So uh, I, I want to make that caveat. But my point is that we do try. And so that's what uh, what I do. I, I, I go really to the to the front line of the emerging sustainability um, thought leadership and, and, and relay that back and see, OK, what, what do we want to do? with this as a company working in the energy transition. That's what we do. We were mostly in, um, we're in energy where we have a large tech component there as well. Um, and so uh, one of the things obviously that I work on that is much more related to what Schneider Electric does is the just transition part, right? So we're, we, we have all the technological solutions. We're very good at that. Um, but we also realized, okay, we need to, so the social part is just, it's just an imperative to also work on. And so we already do that, but you know, that's, that's some of the things that we're focusing on within Snyder. And, and I think that goes a little bit back to what we said earlier, uh, you know, you have all these big things, these enormous leverage points in yeah. the system that you want to work on. And then you choose based on your competencies, uh, where you where you can do the most good. So you started uh, in twenty twenty one or twenty twenty two, working uh, twenty twenty two. Yeah. Okay. So is it is it giving you what you were expecting? You know, are you able to to push? You know, the envelope and and. Uh... Yes. Yeah. You are. Yes. I, I do. I do feel that. Yes. I, I, I've been presenting on this well-being mm -hmm. economics. Uh, so it, it, it is something that, you know, uh, like I said, this is emerging. So it's really mm -hmm. also uh, wondering how do we work with this then? What, what, is, what does it mean to be a well-being business? for example, right? Mm -hmm. Those are all, this is all very, everybody is trying. And I think that's a key thing to remember for anybody listening to this podcast. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think there's a lot of uh, uncertainty. Mm -hmm. People, some people call it the liminal space. So we are, yeah. we are in this transition. And um, what the past business as usual is no way forward, but then what's the new thing, right? That's, mm -hmm. we don't know that yet. So that's the liminal space that we're in. And especially the younger generation, they have a lot of eco-anxiety, uh, which is very understandable because they will be bearing much of the brunt yeah. of the consequences of this, even though they didn't cause it. Um, and so uh, that's, there's such an uncomfortability that comes with that. And my, my advice would be to sometimes um, remind yourself that you're not alone, that we're all going through this, unless mm -hmm. you're incredibly oblivious. Mm -hmm. Most of us are going through this. And it really is about just uh, being as comfortable as you can in this uncomfortability while you're just staying connected to your values and then kind of figure out what it is and that will have to be that's why we have these notions now in business a lot agility and iterative processes and that because that really is what it is like there's no way there, there's no stability um uh, we're uh, no stability is, is that's that's strongly put but we're, we live in a very dynamic environment uh, there's a lot of future uncertainty 
And so that's the, the I think everybody has that in their own way. And uh, you just search for answers together and you exchange best practices and that's how you move forward. Right. Well, thank you for that. And I, I really, um, what you just said is, I, I think comforting and, and helpful for, for folks out there. And, and especially as you said, you know, among the younger generation, there is a lot of anxiety, you know, what needs to happen. There is a, you know, there is an urgency and you don't always, you often don't get that when you look at what's happening in the world and politics and stuff. Um, so yeah, th I think, uh, you know, the listeners would be, uh, we're happy to hear you say that. Um, and anyway, I, I think you sh they should read your book because it, it, it as I said, I, I think you are hopeful. It's it's not about oh it's it's there is no problem, but it it's you know it, it what you have done is um, this is the situation we have challenges, but it's not all bad. There are still things that we can do. So I, I think that's really necessary nowadays in twenty twenty three and beyond. And hey, I would also I, like to yeah, mention, sure. if I may, that it's free mm -hmm. for download. So yes, you don't, yes. Yeah. Actually, I, <laughs> you don't have to purchase it. You can purchase yeah. a hard copy, but you, you can just download it and it's for free. Why did you do that? Why did you? Well, because I, I really want I want to. I mean, <laughs> that's for me is kind of the well-being economics thing, mm -hmm. too. Right. People are my basic needs are met. And then after that, people are really motivated by mm. doing something that they think really contributes to society. And I think that's why I wrote this book. I didn't write this book to sell many copies. I, I wrote it because I think it will genuinely answer some questions that people have. I, th I think a lot of people have this notion of this cannot possibly be the best system. <laughs> You're right. That yeah, is, yeah. I think we all have that sometimes when we mm -hmm. look at this, this can't possibly be the best way to organize ourselves. Yeah. And, and it's not. And so, but where do you start? And uh, I, I was, I, I thought that me, that this, my book maybe might help. There's also a lot of personal advice uh, in the vein of what we just discussed about how to navigate that emotionally. And so I wanted to make that available for as many people as possible. And that's why it's free for download. Yeah. So it's called uh, Five Insights for Avoiding Global Collapse by Gaia Harrington. And, and I will make sure that we mention the links in, in the podcast notes um, so so uh, that people can really download and, and read it. Hey, Gaia, I would like to go to a, a couple of questions that I always ask. And it has to do with, you know, this podcast, as, as you might know or might not know, is, is a spin-off of a 100-mile walk that I've been doing since 2012, um, you know, to raise awareness um, and funds to end hunger, poverty, and, and injustice. And, you know, during COVID, I couldn't walk with others. So I, I came up with this podcast and now it ha has gone out of hand. Uh, <laughs> still going. Um, but it's really a lot of fun to do. So I walk, you know, 100 miles uh, in five to seven days. Um, if you would be asked to, to walk 100 miles in five to seven days, for which course would you do it? Um, I, uh, yeah, I, that's, uh, I, there's so many causes, first of all, of, of course, uh, but I, like I said, I think, I, like, I think I, I, I've just been talking about on your podcast, uh, I think one of the root causes 
is our current economic system that that is predicated on growth. So if I could change that, uh, I, I think a lot of all these other causes would be way less. I, I think uh, a lot of the, the the social causes and and uh, and of course the natural causes, nature that's being destroyed. Um, you know, it 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 comes from the unnecessary commodification of things. We commodify nature, even though we feel. I think we all feel kind of. Most of us feel deep inside that nature is sacred. That you cannot put a price on it. Uh, social interaction, same thing, right? Um, and I think that's because. Um, and, and so we all have that in us, but mm -hmm. the thing is, if you have an economic, an economic system where you have to have continuous growth, once people's needs are met, now you have to start creating endless ones. Mm -hmm. And so what do you do then? Well, actually, uh, you commodify a social interaction and then that's what you sell. Right. Mm -hmm. So and I think that's that's what's happening. Uh, our social and then it's actually great that your social needs aren't met much because then you will keep buying that simulacrum, basically, that that substitutes that will never really satisfy you mm -hmm. um, so that you keep purchasing it and keep uh, keep contributing to the growth. So I think a lot of the uh, the social woes that we see, for example, is precisely because we have commodified our needs. And in a well-being economy, that wouldn't happen. So that's that's why I would go to the root cause and, mm -hmm. and work towards changing the economic system. Okay. Um, you know, when when I walk with uh, when I'm accompanied by others, uh, either for a mile or you know ten miles, whatever, um, we often start talking about you know the meaning of life, spirituality, uh, religion. Um, I, I think it has to do with is it walking very often when you do it for a long for many miles it becomes a spiritual experience almost mm. um and and what i'm most in intrigued about is then often we start talking about the younger generation and spirituality and religion and then some of my co-workers said oh you know they are really different the younger generations and others saying no they are not different they might go less at least in western countries they might go less to churches but it doesn't mean they are less spiritual so my, my question for you is what do you see in your uh, community um with regard to youth and spirituality and religion yeah yeah um i don't think i think the youth is very plugged in personally mm -hmm. i i'm mm -hmm. very impressed actually with their social awareness mm -hmm. they i think they're much better even than i am um when it comes to for example lgbtq uh you know mm -hmm. they're they're very plucked in. They're very aware. Uh, so I don't think it's, I, I, I don't think they're less caring. Mm -hmm. You hear this said a lot. I don't see that at all. Um, they are unplugged sometimes because they are very disappointed in the current mm -hmm. system, which I think is completely understandable. Mm -hmm. So I don't blame them at all. What you see in the US, I'm not sure how, what it's like in, in Europe, um, mm -hmm. that mental health is actually declining. So deteriorating, it's not yeah. going well. Um, if I'm correct, um, I, I believe I remember recently seeing on the news that the number one cause of death for teenagers at the moment is suicide. And so that's a, that's very 
disconcerting. It's mm-hmm. not that surprising. There's the eco anxiety that I that I mentioned. You know, mm-hmm. our our happiness. That's that's an interesting thing. Our happiness is not so much tied to, as I've already mentioned, uh, material stuff after a certain point, uh, but it's also it's much more about. Um, uh, how you know our social needs, but also part of the spiritual need is also the the peace of mind that this prosperity that we have can last. It's mm-hmm. very hard to enjoy anything, even if you have everything in the moment, if you know it can be taken away from you tomorrow. And I think that that you know the the, the concept of prospect, mm-hmm. I think t- you know the, the younger generation is is acutely aware that their prospects are less than that of their parents Mm. and that weighs on them massively and it's very understandable i am not a fan of uh one measure certainly Mm -hmm. not gdp but really not any measure because Mm -hmm. again nothing then uh, our needs are just much more of a plethora of all kinds of different wishes but uh if if i had to if i was forced to choose one indicator i would say uh, to govern a, a nation by, I would say it's the reported happiness of children. And those are, by those measures, the US is not a great performer, and many countries around the world would not be as successful as we mm. see them today. So I, I, I do believe that yeah, I completely agree with you. I think it's a very important question. I think there's a lot of potential in the younger generation. I also think that at the moment, um, it's underutilized, if not being squandered a little bit. Talking a little bit about the, you know, piggybacking on the future and sustainability, uh, the world came up with uh, the 17 sustainable development goals. I often mm. try to lift this up because not everybody knows about it. And I'm, well, maybe coming from Europe, I'm surprised that this country in the US, many people don't even know existence, about its existence. And I think it's not. Well, you know, it's it, it might not it's far from perfect, but at least it's something that we discussed and we have as a mm-hmm. world. Um, and you know, when you talked about the five leverage points, when you talk about gender equality, you know, one of the goals is gender equality, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so my question to all my listeners is, um, what do you like our listeners to know about the uh, seventeen sustainable development goals? Yeah, and and just as a side note, the Club mm-hmm. of Rome is currently mapping and modeling how the leverage points all contribute to the different SDGs. Okay. So yeah, we're very much working with the community there to to you know to because we don't want to have different frameworks that are yeah. disjointed. So uh, yeah, uh, there's there's a lot of uh, ways that they feed into the SDGs mm-hmm. in different ways. Um, I, I think it's a good comprehensive set. I, 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 I you know, I, I don't think uh, last time I checked, I don't think there was any country really on track. So that's that's, that's the downside of them. I do think it's a comprehensive set. Uh, I think it's goal eight. There, there are still still a clear, there decent employment and uh, and economic performance. I think. Um, and you see that it, that goal is symbolized with an arrow that goes upwards. So, you know, there's still this notion of growth in there. Even that, I don't mind so much because, you know, the most of the world is not the West. So, you know, most of the world still has some growing to do when it comes to their basic needs. So that's fine. But I will say that... Um, 
uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm working with, I'm talking to and working with people, for example, at the World Bank as well, mm-hmm. about making the message clear that, you know, this development, it's not, if we're talking about international development, like, uh, like with uh, institutions like the UN and uh, the World Bank, it's not just about the growing of those developed nations, because they, they literally won't be able to do that. They will bump into planetary boundaries. We're mm-hmm. already doing that. We have broken six of the nine uh, quantified planetary yeah. boundaries, as, as done by Rockstrom et al. So um, they, they won't be able to do that without, at the same time, rich countries uh, uh, really reducing their ecological footprint. And so that it's a two-prong uh, approach that, you know, right now you only see the first part, but I think mm-hmm. inevitably that the, the second part needs to be way more integrated into there. Um, a, a quick other question I have is is um, uh, we we talked about this you know um, as well about uh, you have to change yourself and and you know the, the importance of community mental health and stuff. Um, a, a growing group of people is saying one of the reasons that we are not reaching those uh, SDGs is because we did not pay atten- proper attention to the knowledge, skills, and abilities that you need as an individual and as a community. So. They did a research and a questionnaire, and as a result of the questionnaire, they came up with uh, five inner development goals. Um, you know, being, thinking, relating, collaborating, and action. Um, have you heard about the IDGs, the inner development goals, and if so, any thoughts on that? I um, so I've I've read that the website, and mm-hmm. that's about the extent of my knowledge. So okay. uh, you know, I've heard of them, but that's kind of where it ends. Uh, I I think it does make sense to me, because um, it's I, you see this in the U.S. a lot too, especially as mm-hmm. a Dutch person coming to the U.S., where um, the education that's the availability of education is so much less than in the Netherlands. So you have such large pockets of the population that are are really undereducated i would say mm-hmm. and that and then you can see that it's just well intentioned people kind people that 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 just simply love their country and actually have this innate desire that i think we all have to leave the world a little bit better than we found it i do think that's a universal um spiritual need that we have uh, but if you don't have any knowledge about to effectively do that uh not only will you be ineffective but you can actually be dangerous because you can be influenced by let's say social media with uh algorithms that are not Mm -hmm. actively working towards your well-being um or just uh corporations that want to keep selling you certain stuff and uh you can really be manipulated to them into doing things that kind of taking advantage of your desire to do good and do things that are really not that good at all, but you wouldn't know it. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's part of the stabilized world scenario and or well-being economics model is also very much, uh, much more available, high education, high quality education. Uh, and of course, access to healthcare should be universal as well. So the health and education are key, key parts of, of any new system. Um, you know, the U.S. has unparalleled education. I went to Harvard. Unparalleled. It's great. 
but most Americans will never be able to go there. So, um, you know, and, and, and I mean, there are many great colleges and universities, but, uh, you know, again, most people don't get that great education. So there's almost unparalleled education in the US, but at the same time, also one of the most uneducated people you will ever meet. And that discrepancy mm. is part of the problem, I think. So, um, I, I do, I think education is a little bit different than what you mentioned with mm -hmm. the inner development goals. That's much broader, mm -hmm. critical thinking skills, but yeah. all of those, I do think uh, if you have high quality education will be there. Um, and, and I think that's, that's, I agree that that's part of the solution. Yeah. I have a couple of more questions, but I, I will do that more in rapid fire. So if we can go a little bit quicker, mm -hmm. um, I, you know, I hope what I hope to do with this podcast is to really connect people, uh, listeners with, you know, the the, the guests and, and uh, guests with guests. So and I've done I came up with a, a question of the previous guest as a result of, of that uh, attempt. And the previous guest is asking you, assuming we are still talking about the, the unit of analysis being either nonprofits, philanthropies or INGOs, right? Where does our next speaker see the biggest gap between the espoused values, meaning the, the, the values that those nonprofits and NGOs say they are all about, and their real actions, habits, and behaviors? So where is that gap the biggest? And what is what is the result? What 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 do we see as a, as an implication of that? Yeah, I think it, you know. I think there's a little bit of a hint of hypocrisy that mm -hmm. that that this person is, is going at, and I actually address that in my book as well. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, I think we're all hypocrites because we live in a system where meeting our needs you need to be part of the system to meet our basic needs mm -hmm. and uh so you're always going to be and those are again those are universal you, you can't not meet them uh so and, and i think it's for these ngos but it's the same for you and i it's like i'd, I'd rather not charge anything for any of my research even mm -hmm. to schneider electric but it's not possible because i also have basic needs so um I, you know, it, it, it's uh, with the NGOs, it's the same thing. They have, uh, I think they want to contribute to their stated goals. At the same time, they have to operate in a system where where if they don't produce certain things or where their their funding can be taken away. And so that's, uh, and, and, and some of them have really pivoted to this point where they're making a profit, which I think is fine. Um, uh, if you do that well, I think many of them do that well, actually. And so they're nonprofits, but they are actually generating profits. It's just all generated towards that good cost, which uh, to make them more self-sustaining. Uh, I think most of them do that well. Um, I think some of them might be diverting a little bit more to overhead than they should be. Um, but again, that's that's not that different from, I think, anybody else. Uh, companies are also, no company says, uh, 
on their website, our mission is to make as much profit as possible, even though judged on their behavior, that's really kind of what they do. So my point is we're, we're all hypocrites. We all have the desire to contribute to society, but we're locked into a system where you can only do that really um, through, where, through growth. And I, again, that's why I think we need to change that. Your question for the next guest. If you weren't, if you could just sit for a while and think, imagine what it would be if you, if your basic needs were just always met as a default, your need for, for food and shelter and high quality healthcare, all those things were not dependent on what you did on a daily basis. If that was the case, then what would you, how would you spend your time? I think that's worth pondering. Great. Um, if I would ask you to mention a song or a piece of music that embodies for a big part what Gaia, what you are about, which piece of music or song would that be and why? Um, yeah, if it, if, I mean, I like many uh, songs, but I think... Mm -hmm. The one that embodies what I do is maybe uh, You're the Voice from the rock group Heart. Uh, because that, that talks about, you know, we uh, that you really do have a have a, a voice and an ability to influence your society, that um, we have to uh, make it speak before uh, before we take too much time, uh, before we take much longer. Uh, and I, I think that's I and the reason that embodies kind of what I do is because I do believe we all have this. Uh, most of us have this longing for something better. Okay, and we we will add the song to a Spotify playlist that we started, which you can find if you search within Spotify for a hashtag Walk Talk Listen. And you see all the songs that have been uh, selected by, uh, or picked by uh, my guest. Hey, Gaia, um, a, a guy called Steve Hartman of CBS in the US examines at the moment uh, how one simple act of kindness creates a ripple effect. Um, what are your thoughts about that? If, and um, about you know, the simple act of kindness in creating a ripple effect? That's one part of the question. The second part is if we would ask you on the spot uh, to commit to one simple act of kindness this week, what would you do? Yeah, I, I think I think we've seen, I think I, I remember seeing some research about that before. Uh, this, So I, I'm not sure how long he's been doing that, but I, I, that, that has been, that ripple effect, I think that notion um, is, is, has been around for at least a decade, I think. Mm -hmm. I think that's absolutely true. And the same is true for other things. When when people are are not nice, that typically, you know, we're social animals. We pick up on those energies. So certainly that's the case. Um, I personally am kind because of more of an inherent motivation. Mm -hmm. That just works best for me. It's more about what kind of person I want to be. And so whether or not my kindness creates a ripple effect is, is not really my motivation. It's just mm -hmm. 
this is the kind of person I would like to be mm. in this moment. And what the other person does with it is not it's not my business, really. Mm. Uh, so that's just my personal uh, motivation for being kind. Um, I, I like, uh, I, I mean, there's so many ways. I, I typically try to look for how I can be kind in every situation and it differs in many different ways. Um, I, I I give away free my stuff for free. I, I get a real enjoyment from that, actually, mm -hmm. knowing that the, the things that I don't use anymore are being used. That feels like the natural order of things to me. I don't believe that stuff should be sitting there in your garage collecting dust. Uh, you know, uh, I, I give to charity. I uh, open to hold the door open for people. I mean, all those acts of kindness are, again, ultimately, they make my life better. Mm. Uh, they make my, because I then I create a world in where I live where people do that for another, for one another. And that just makes me feel better already just doing it. So I, I really can't think of one specific act of kindness because mm -hmm. I, I just I just do it around the day as much as I can. I, I think, you know, you, you you did one by speaking with me for the last hour. So <laughs> I, re I really, I really appreciate that. And, and uh, yeah, I, I learned a lot and I enjoyed listening to you. Um, and I'm sure the listeners as well. Um, any message, invitation or question for the listeners? Uh, I would I would maybe end with uh, how I end my book. Uh, so I'm giving away the ending, and maybe I shouldn't do that. But uh, I mean, there's 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 more interesting stuff before the ending. Too. That is, yeah. Uh, uh, but I would say that you know, in in this in a system where that's predicated on eternal growth, you will inevitably have been told that you're not good enough because in a world in a narrative that um, says you can never have enough you are made to feel like you never are enough. And so I would just leave the this podcast and, and, and share with your listeners that you are more and better than what you've been told. Right. And I, I like that uh, linking it with the word enough. And, and uh, my organization has a slogan in terms of that is enough for all. And I also interviewed, I think two years ago, a singer, called Maya Susena, who, who uh, made a song recently about, you know, uh, enough, very powerful. So I would really um, encourage you to check that song out and the listeners as well. So, um, yeah, Gaia, uh, before I ask the last question, is, is a, a quick one is, you know, you told me before we started that you're seven months pregnant. Is, um, is that changing you already in the way you your work and, and i mean not not because you know you're getting bigger obviously that <laughs> that also you know brings along uh things with it but but just because of you know there will be a child in your life and uh with your partner um yeah i um uh, you know i get that i i this is my second and last one uh by mm -hmm. the way uh but so i already am a mother uh, she's two years old now, and I think in general, maybe sort of surprisingly, it hasn't shaped my view much because I, mm -hmm. I really would care about the future generation, mm -hmm. even though yeah. if none of them are mine. But um, I do, I guess there's more of an emotional part when I see how much my daughter just blindly 
trusts me that mm. I will take care of her. Mm. And I think I have a little bit more empathy even for the younger generation because of that, that mm. they are they are growing up now. Her her trust in me is still blind, but that will change at some point. And the the you know that's what we talked about the mental health of, of mm-hmm. teenagers, etc. They are awakening to the fact that they were not taken care of by the older generations mm-hmm. that should have, I think. And I, I so I, I guess I'm I, I'm even more empathetic to that part. I think that's um, yeah. If I can see the just the the happiness that my that she takes for granted that she's taken care of. Um, losing that must be just I, I'm not surprised at all that there's a lot of mental health issues mm-hmm. and the younger generation and and I guess yeah like I said I have more empathy for that right thanks um yeah any question that I should have asked you and I didn't uh, I think we covered uh, a lot already mm-hmm. um no I, I I think we're good I, th- I do like what you mentioned about the concept of enough though that is certainly something that um i think came through in my words but that's also i very explicitly mention in my book this concept of enough and the double meaning of it too mm-hmm. right so certainly enough for each mm-hmm. uh, that's the first meaning but also enough as in not beyond this limit so mm-hmm. that's the, the planetary boundaries ones we, we do enough uh and and at a certain point we don't go beyond there because it's then we're asking too much of of mother nature basically so i i would say if there's one word if that i could use to describe what our dogma should be it wouldn't be growth anymore it would be enough thank you so much Gaia, for for your willingness to talk with me today for everything you do and all the best with you know uh, the coming months um, <laughs> and and beyond of course so uh, yeah thank you so much pleasure to be here thank you for listening to walk talk listen please check us out on 100mile.org or follow us on Facebook or Instagram.